Well, this morning I want to invite you again to open your Bibles, and we're going to actually go right to John, the book of John, John chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, and it's in connection to our sermon series, Opening Your Heart for Others. And as you prepare to do that, I just want to remind you that Christ opened his heart for us, and Christ is very familiar with oppression, some of the themes that we are going to talk about. He's familiar with envy and greed. He saw that in the lives of others. And he's familiar with loneliness. And yet we see a heart that is open wide to redeem us from these social ills and restore hope and favor. So let us open our Bibles to John chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. We'll read only to verse 6. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. I just want to pause there just for a second for you to remember maybe a little bit about what flogging is about. It's a very inhumane form of punishment that one human can do to another. It's a whip of sorts, as you can see on this picture, that that causes the skin to be torn, bruised. And it says after 39 lashes that it actually prepares the person for death because it, it, it reduces the length of agony the person is going to endure on the cross. So they would flog, and then they would hang them to be crucified. Jesus was first flogged. The soldiers then, as we read on, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And you can imagine they didn't do this gently. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Notice that there's no commentary about what Jesus did in response. He did nothing. Once more, Pilate came out, verse 4, and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. The only thing that could proceed from their mouths when they saw the Lamb of God. They wanted his blood. We're going to open the Bible again. We're going to continue in our Bible reading by going to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, which will be our passage for this morning. And as you find Ecclesiastes chapter 4 in your Bibles, beginning at verse 1, let me just remind you that we're talking about the teacher here, which we assume is Solomon. He is the Koheleth in Hebrew. And he is an observer. And his position of observing is, of course, as you know, under the sun. It's, a, you could say, a one-dimensional point of view. That's why as we read our text, there's not a lot of answers. There's just a, a kind of a compiling of the problems. And the problems are deep. And I also want to share with you that as I'm going to preach on this, there are going to be points where you might be triggered. Because when we talk about oppression, we're talking about the human experience. That can be very intense. And call back many memories or current living conditions. And so I just want to remind you that we're going to find hope ultimately, of course, uh, not in the compiler of, 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 of Ecclesiastes, which is the Koheleth. We're going to find comfort and hope ultimately in the Savior who is oppressed for our sake. 
Let's begin at chapter 4, verse 1. There we read, again, I look and, and saw the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. And they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. And here it comes again. And they have no comforter. And I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Again, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from a person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable uh, business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. And pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And if we two lie down together, they will keep warm. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord for a blessing over the reading of and preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we want you to inform our hearts now with your holy word. Direct our thoughts. Let your spirit do a great work in us. And we ask this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So our theme for this morning is opening your heart for others. And there's four things I want to look at from our text this morning. To open your heart for others, we need to address these four realities as they come out in our text. The problem of oppression, the problem of envy, the problem of greed, and the problem of loneliness. And I realize that these are rather eclectic. You might not put them together like this. But at the heart of all this is the heart. <laughs> How the heart um, confronts these, these social ills, these evils of our day. Let's begin with the problem of oppression. Verse 1 reads as follows, Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. A few things we learn here just off the top. Number one, that oppression of people is inseparably connected to power. It's a, an abuse of power. The Hebrew word is the word to mistreat. And it's the idea of mistreating someone who is vulnerable, who is disadvantaged, who is under, you could say, under your control to their social, to their harm. That's what oppression is. And of course, then there's this power differential between the one who is the abusing and the one who is abused, the oppressor and the one who is victimized. It's a grave evil. And it continues to mar the pages of history. 
the oppression that we see in this world. We have it in the political world, in the political regimes of our day, where governments oppress their people. Hitler and his cronies sending millions to the gas chamber because of their ideology. Pol Pot in the killing fields in Cambodia, despots like Mussolini or our present-day despot like Kim Jong-un or tyrannical leaders like Xi Jinping and, and mass murders committed by ISIS. And there is untold oppression throughout this world today. All we need to do is talk about the human trading, the trading of humans for sexual exploitation and prostitution, which seems to grow unabated. In our world. And then there's also still systematic, ra systematic racism. So systemic racism. I don't know if you know this. This is Black History Month. And a former African-Canadian who was a professor of mine. Uh, he's still living. Uh, but he was a towering. He continues to be a towering intellect. His name is G Gary Warner. I remember sitting under his teaching. And I was really blessed by him. He wrote in the Spectator. The Hamilton Spectator. These words. Times have changed. Yet black students today complain strenuously about ongoing experiences of systemic racism. Perhaps the awakening unleashed by George Floyd's murder will move us closer to the top of the hill. It still exists. Just followed a, a young woman who shared her story um, on CTV News of the comments and the things that were written in her yearbook that were so racially charged and so pejorative. It exists. It exists in society, it exists in the political world, but also exists in people's homes. Some of you know the story of baby P, Peter, in England, who faced 50 injuries over the course of eight months to his death at 17 months old. Or the boy called it, and the abuse that he endured, the abuse of children continues throughout this world. Or the abuse of women. One in four women continue to face severe physical abuse, or they will in the course of their life, from their spouse. One in seven men face physical abuse. And I'm not even mentioning emotional abuse. Or you can remember the cries of the elderly who are abandoned in old age homes. Etched in the walls are their tears, living, as it were, in a penitentiary. Or what about the cries of the infant? The very small infant in the womb who has his life or her life taken from her or him when she's second trimester, third, or before. He says, I saw the tears of the oppressed and there was no comforter. And then he says the same thing again. There was no comforter. But this is not what the Lord desires this is what the Lord says in Zechariah 7, verse 9. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty said. A minister true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppose the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Because we read in, in Proverbs 6, verse 17, the Lord hates the hand that sheds innocent blood. He hates oppression. He hates injustice. But that's what we see. In this world. And it should ignite your heart with a fire of righteous indignation when we watch and observe social injustice. 
because you have to understand that behind the, the, the physical realm of un, in, injustice, of what you see, or oppression, there's a deeper and darker sin going on. And it's the sin of dehumanization. It's the sin of looking at someone as subhuman. As no longer image bearers of the Almighty. A Spanish scholar, his name is Dr. Sousa Santos, speaking about the trafficking of women. He argues oppression is an act of a dehumanizing of the person. He says this, and I quote, The world today operates on a deeply drawn lines, on deeply drawn lines which separate the human from the subhuman world. In such a way that human principles are not threatened by inhumane practices in this subhuman world. It seems the human principles no longer apply. There is no law for those in this inhumane world. Here he says we find people who do not exist, either in social or legal terms. These spaces are constructed on the basis of new forms of slavery, the illegal trafficking of human organs, child labor, and the exploitation of prostitution or sex trafficking. It's a subhumanization of other people. That's where oppression goes. You see, Hitler with his war machine first ghettoized people and then he brought them into extermination camps and the, Jew and the German nation looked on as Hitler was doing this. And you wonder how they were deemed as subhuman, the whole Jewish race. This, that's also the story of those who are sex trafficked. It's an awful, awful evil. And the conclusion of the teacher is simply this. It's better if they did not live at all. You see, it's a cry of desperation from the heart. It's the fire of righteous indignation, but he has no recourse. He just observes, and he observes this power differential, and he says there's just no comfort. You see, from his horizontal worldview, under the sun, he can come to only this conclusion, that there's no smile beneath the tyrant's frown. There's no comfort from the tyrant. That's his first problem. He moves on then. He says there's another problem. And one could argue that the problem, the next problem, which is the problem of envy, provides the soil for the seeds of oppression to grow. And I think they're related. He says in verse 4, And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless in a chasing after the wind. Envy, as some of you know, is one of the seven deadly sins. And no one escapes its poisonous tentacles. I wonder this morning, if you're honest with yourself, whether you would say that you struggle still with envy. And here's a litmus test for you this morning that I would like you to apply. If you spend 15 minutes, just 15 minutes on social media, whatever the platform, and then after your 15 minutes, I want you to measure, don't do it right now, <laughs> follow me here. I want you to measure the status of your heart. After you've watched others, do you feel at all dissatisfied with yourself? 
Do you feel discontented, maybe even undone? Maybe you feel ugly. Maybe you feel stupid. Maybe you even become angry with your life. As you've watched for 15 minutes other people live their life out. Because you think to yourself, they have it all together. They have the looks, they have the intelligence, they have the money, they have a nicer home, they have a nicer car, they have a nicer yard, they have better vacations pre-COVID. You see, it's very, very easy to allow envy to enter into the chambers of our heart. And it's the dark side of the human story that's not visible It's an invisible poison. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says it this way. He says, a heart at peace gives life to the body. A heart that's content gives life to the body. But listen, but envy rots the bones. And all God's people should say amen. We know of that rot. See, the envy that the, 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 the Koheleth or the teacher is focusing on is the material envy. The, in the material world, what people have and don't have. And it sparks this competitive spirit in us. This desire really to outdo the other. In, in Latin, there was an expression to capture this. I'll say it in Latin. And if you're Latin, if you know Latin, you'll say, well, you didn't say it properly. That's okay. But it's homo homini lupus. You're like, well, what does that mean? It means human rivalry is wolf-like. It's ferocious. It's never satisfied. You see, envy produces this endless, relentless pursuit of what we call upward mobility. I need more. I need to have a better house. I need to have a nicer car. I need to move here. I need to do this. I need to have this. Why? Because my neighbor has this. And I deserve what my neighbor has. In fact, I'm going to go one step further. If my neighbor has that, I should have that, or I should have it even more than he has. I mean, look at me. I've done more than he has or she has. This is what the teacher is addressing here. This competitive spirit so that you toil after something for the sole purpose of outdoing the Joneses. See there, if we're going to talk about the heart, is not captivated by love for your neighbor. To help them, to serve them. No, there the heart has grown cold And even when you love your neighbor, you love them with an envious love only to hope that maybe you can get something from them because they have what you want. It's a dangerous place to be. This author is unknown, but he makes it, or she made it well said, any friend can share your sorrows and failures, but it takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. When someone is succeeding, we're often envious of them. We don't really celebrate with them. No, we look at a neighbor and say, you know what? I deserve what you have. And so we work longer hours. We play the stock market with hungrier eyes. We purchase that nicer house. We purchase that nicer car. We go to more exotic vacations. And we refuse to downside. We refuse to move into a neighborhood that's a little bit more difficult for Jesus. Because our focus is not Jesus. Our focus is upward. Always better, always more. 
And the conclusion from the Koheleth from the teacher is simply this. It's meaningless. What are you chasing? You can't hold on to it. It's a vapor. Interestingly, just quickly, he moves from envy to laziness or slothfulness. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. And I think just quickly that there's a connection between envy and slothfulness. It's the inverse. You envy your neighbor and you desire what your neighbors have. And then you look at your life and you're like, I'm never going to get there. And so you just give up. But you have to understand when we look at the heart in both those conditions, whether you're lazy and slothful, another deadly sin, or you're envious, the heart is at the same point. You don't care for your neighbor. Envy robs your neighbor of the love that you should have for them and the concern you should have for them. You find, you see them as a competitor. And robbery, sorry, and laziness robs your, your neighbor of the ability to help them. You have nothing to give your neighbor because you're lazy. Both are a sin and an evil in this world. Here's the third problem. The third problem is greed. There was a man, verse 8, all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. We're seeing something very similar to, greed, to envy here. Greed is also one of the seven deadly sins. It's avarice or varus. It's the endless desire for more, and it doesn't really need to take into account anybody else. So somebody who's greedy does not necessarily need to be envious. They're just so full of themselves, so focused on what they want. To hell with the world, they're just going to get it. It's his wants, his desires. And the picture is quite bleak, actually, here. You see, he's at the center in this story, in this example, of his own existence and ultimately toils for nothing. He works longer hours, gets up earlier in the morning, finds two jobs, finds three jobs, secures a bigger bank account, has more capital for a bigger home, buys the bigger home. He's now living in a castle in the foothills of Jerusalem. He has a house on the Dead Sea, and he has a boat, a yacht, entire, along the Mediterranean. But he's lonely, and he's desperate. And he asks this question, and there's no answer. For whom, I, whom I, for whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? I just keep working and working and working. Do you know people like that? The British writer Samuel Johnson put it like this. Think about this quote for a while. To be unhappy at home is the ultimate result of ambition. I'll say it again. To be unhappy at home is the ultimate result of ambition. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. It's a chasing, a shepherding of the wind. And one more quote from an English author, J.K. Chesterton. He puts it like this, and I like this quote. There are two ways to get enough, he says. One is to continue to accumulate more and more and more. And the other is to desire less. You can reflect on that as well. 
And I would, desire, I would say one is to accumulate more and more. The other one is to desire Christ more, which is to desire the things of this world less and the things of the coming kingdom more. But the teacher's not even done here yet. He's listed three problems, but now he moves out of the third problem into the fourth, which is also very connected. And, he, and he's now thinking loneliness. And he finishes with the problem with loneliness. He says, loneliness is a problem, but I have a solution at least for this. It's a practical solution. But I would argue that loneliness is a huge problem, and I've shared this before. Henry Nouwen argues, the, 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 the Catholic author, that it's one of the greatest social ills of our time. In England, they have a ministry of loneliness because they recognize loneliness as a social epidemic. Studies, they say, in the U.S., Scandinavia, and Japan have shown that people who are socially disconnected, that means they're lonely, are between two and five times more likely to die from various health-related causes compared with matched individuals who have, the, who have close ties with family, friends, and a community. So people who are separated from family, friends, and a tight-knit community are two times Two to five times more likely to die from various health-related issues. Loneliness is also a problem here in McQueston, our neighborhood. We know that. It's interesting now how they phrase homes that are single-parent homes. It used to be always, this is a single-parent home. But now they start phrasing it, this is a lone-parent home. And here's just a, a, a diagram of that to kind of give you an idea. Roughly... 23.5 uh, or 24% of homes in McQueston area, well, Ward 4, which includes McQueston, are lone, female loan homes. That means there are, there's no husband or spouse there. And 5% are lone, male loan homes. That means about 25, about 30% of the homes here in McQueston are lone parent homes. There are also many buildings, uh, many buildings across the, the street here, with apartments that have elderly in it who are single, widowed, or widowered. There are lots of lonely people here. And I realize it's possible also to be lonely in a group. It's interestingly, interesting that the, the Kohaleth is actually providing a solution for somebody who's um, on the move. Because he says it's, it's better that, you, that, that, that for labor, yes, but if you move to verse 10, for those who fall down, no one can help them up. That, that's, that's a picture of travel when you, when you fall down and someone needs to be there or falls into a pit or on the road keeping warm. There's a, there's a travel companion that you have in your journey. And that's, and that's beautiful because, you know, we are in a journey. Life is a pilgrimage, and it's beautiful to have a travel companion. But some of you are going to say to me, well, that's fine, uh, Solomon, who Kohaleth, but I, I, I don't have one yet. And actually, Valentine's Day is a very, very difficult day for me because I would love to share my life with a life partner. I am lonely. Those are the problems that we're facing in our text, and they ask the question is, how, what's the solution? It's, it's easy to expose a problem. It's harder to provide an answer to the problems. And for the, some of these social ills that we're talking about, in particular oppression, there is no simplistic answer. You don't want me or you do not want any pastor 
to tell you that we have it all figured out. Why a good God allows oppression to continue in this world stretches our understanding of his sovereign good will. And I admit that to you this morning. We realize that this world is full of beauty, but it's also full of barbed wire. And the two are interconnected in this life. There's a picture of the barbed wire and the beauty of the world behind it. Although we are challenged by this reality, and so there's no quick solution, the answer to oppression, we're just going to spend a few minutes on that right now, the answer to oppression is not non-existence. The idea that it's just better if we didn't, weren't born. That's an emotional response to the suffering that we see in this world. And I know Job had that response, and I know Jeremiah had that response. If only I was born, if only I was a stillborn, Job says. If only my mother never bore me. It's an emotional response, but it's understandable. But it's not a biblical one. And neither, listen to me this on this, neither is it proper then to adopt an atheistic worldview, which is then the non-existent one, and say that it's a Darwinistic world we're living in anyway. It's survival of the fittest. And so therefore, there is no answer to the, op the oppression that we face in this world. Of course, a, a champion of this Darwinistic flag-holding ideology is Dawkins. Dawkins can provide no hope in a world where there's oppression. In his book, River Out of Eden, this is what Dawkins says. I don't, I don't have the quote up on the screen. Just listen to me here. He says, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world, now he's not talking about the moral world, the, moral, the world of oppression, but the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. And then he goes on to explain the death of animals in this world. But then he goes from there immediately into the moral reality. It's an interesting jump. But he says this. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, he says. Other people are going to get lucky. And we won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any, listen, justice. There is no justice in this world, he says. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect it to be if at bottom there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And we're all dancing to our DNA. That's Dawkins' answer. But is it the answer to oppression? Do those who are oppressed only seek solace in death? Do those who are oppressed not also cry out for justice, for vindication, for truth to prevail? Like King David in, in Psalm 17, verse 2, Justice for me will come from your presence. Your eyes see what is right. I know there is a just God out there. You see, will Hitler and his cronies who escaped the Nuremberg War Tribunal 
by ending their life as just as the war ended, enter into oblivion, never to face the consequences of their actions? Do you understand that Hitler and his cronies put 1.5 million children, Jewish children, to death by starvation? Live burials? Gas chambers, and they were promised that they were just going to have a, a quick shower? Or they're lined up on rows and shot? No, Solomon understood, and you must understand here, that that worldview, that atheistic worldview, that there is just non-existence, is not what Solomon is defending. You see, Solomon understood that there is a God who will just righteously, who will judge righteously. In chapter 3, verse 17, we had this last week. God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be, listen, a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Every soul that's ever existed on planet earth will one day face the moral judge of this earth. How do we know that God cares then when there's so much oppression in this world? Our answer to that question is only and can only be found in the reality. And this is what separates the Christian faith from every other world religion is that God entered into our Oppression. It is God on the cross. You must understand. He entered our oppression. He faced off against envy and greed. And he knows loneliness as a human experience better than any one of us this morning. I read from John chapter 19. I think you need to understand it was God there in the person of Jesus Christ who was stripped naked and flogged. It was God there at the hand of the abuser, willingly accepting their flogging and their slapping and their mocking. It was God there. We cannot begin to say even for a moment that God does not understand oppression. He is the oppressed one. Isaiah 53 verse 8 pictures this beautifully. He says, by oppression and judgment, he has taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Who said, stop this craziness? No, they just yelled, crucify him, crucify him. No one interceded, no one stopped him. For he was cut off, we read, from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. That's God in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's God who, who came down into this world and lived a life of downward mobility. He, he was not concerned with having a nice, beautiful home, flash home in, New, in Jerusalem with a, with a lakeshore house on the, on the Dead Sea. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head, he said. 
He came to serve and not to be served, he said. His whole life was marked by humility, was marked by downward, hum- downward mobility to the point he became like a lamb being led to the slaughter. And in that moment, when he is a lamb being led to the slaughter, he experienced loneliness like you and I have never experienced, as I shared. His companions left him. A cord of two is strong, or a cord of three is strong. He didn't have any cords. Suspended between heaven and earth as a picture of this reality that he was rejected by the humanity that he had created and rejected by the Father who had sent him to save us. Oh, he knows loneliness. But the story doesn't end there, loved ones. This one who was stripped bare, flogged, slapped, mocked, crucified. He's a conquering king. And he rose again. And because he rose again, justice now has possibility again. It's through his resurrection that we see as a hermeneutical key, you could say, into the question of injustice in this world, to the question of oppression, because he has conquered death, he has conquered the grave, he has conquered sin, he has conquered evil, and he can stand over it. And he can judge it. And all those who do evil have to stand before his very face. Not to give an account. The oppression that they caused. But Christ is merciful. Because in the heart of every single one of us, there is oppression. We are proud people. We think we're above others. In the heart of every single one of us, there's envy. We are competitive. We're like wolves out there. In the heart of every single one of us, there's greed. We want more. We want a more posh life. We want to live more comfortably. And so we'll just pursue that course. And Jesus says, I love you. I've borne your shame. I've borne the oppressor's shame. I've borne your envious heart. I've borne your greedy heart. And I forgive you. To all who come to Christ, the risen King, whether you have been the oppressor or the oppressed, the greedy or the envious, the slothful or whatever you've been, there is grace sufficient for you. What does this mean for you as we close up? It means we have a pretty amazing Savior. You can take that to the bank. We have a Savior who's opened his heart to you and to a world that's oppressed. And says to you this morning, I know. You're lonely, he says, I know. You're oppressed, he says, I know. You struggle with envy and greed, he says, I've died for you. But now he's calling you out of that reality of what he has accomplished for you on the cross and risen again. Now he's calling you and me this morning to open wide our hearts. To love to stand up for social injustice, to not turn a blind eye, to say, well, that's just happening in this world. I just wish they didn't even live. 
No. A Christian doesn't stand by and say, oh, it's better if they actually weren't alive. No, a Christian enters into the fray and says, how can I help you? How can I bring justice into this situation because Christ has brought justice to this world? It means as followers of Christ, we, we, we don't envy our neighbor. We love them. We aren't greedy. We, we seek a downward mobile life because Christ has. And finally, we realize that a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Neither is a cord of a million. You see, that cord is strengthened not in the sum total of who we are. It's strengthened by the person who's in the middle, tying us all up together. His name is Jesus. Our hearts are going this way and this way, envious and greedy, whatever the case may be. Christ binds us back together and says, I want you to be united. I will put you into my family. Love each other. Care for each other. Help each other. Whether it's the immediate family or the family of Christ, we are a community. And because he's at the center, we are strong. These are the social ills that we're dealing with in our text. Christ is the only option, the only answer to these ills. Trust in him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, for his ministry on earth. He teaches us so, so, so much about what it means to to live in a world that's so broken, where there's oppression and there's greed and there's envy and there's loneliness. But Kohaleth lived in the shadows. He didn't understand how much he needed a Savior to bring clarity and hope in the midst of all this mess. But we stand on the other side of the resurrected Savior and we are thankful that there will be a day of reckoning. That non-existence is not the answer. Christ is. And his purposes will prevail. We thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.